Ladies and gentlemen, the tiny DevOps guy. Welcome to another episode of the Tiny DevOps Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Hall, and on the show, we like to solve big technical problems with small teams. Today, I'm joined by Joy Eberts, who is uh, a member of the Split Team, which uh, I, I think I'll let you, Joy, explain, because I'm sure you can do a better job than I can. Welcome to the show. Would you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm a principal software engineer at Split. Uh, Split does feature flagging and experimentation software. And specifically what I do is I'm a backend engineer for Split and I focus on um, basically putting together the technical vision for our backend uh, team as a whole and trying to make sure that we're generally aligned and trying to make sure larger technical projects can get prioritized on the various teams roadmaps. Um, we have, I've been at Split for about two and a half years now and we have, oh, I don't know, maybe 50 engineers at this point. Nice. A nice size group. Not too big, not too small. That's what I was going for when I joined. <laughs> Good. And is it growing quickly? Oh, uh, yeah, we are. Uh, we're, we probably doubled project in engineering or okay. product in engineering over the past year. Yeah. Okay, cool. So uh, I met you on a Slack group where we were talking uh, with some other people about uh, feature flagging and, and versus A-B testing and different ways of thinking about this stuff. And in that conversation, you shared a blog post, which of course I'll put in the show notes for anybody to read. But it, I thought it was a really interesting post because uh, it was, I think it was seven ways to use feature flags uh, at Split. And a couple of them jumped out at me, but maybe we could just breeze through those. Because um, I, I imagine many people listening, of course, are familiar with feature flags, but others, that there might be a new concept. And some of these use cases especially might be new. Um, do you want to just take us through those, uh, those, we reasons or ways to use feature flags. The first one here was was testing in production, and that's that's probably something that sounds scary to a lot of people. Maybe you want to explain what the concept is and how feature flags are helpful. <laughs> yeah, that's probably one of our most common use cases, actually. So when you release a feature, um, or I guess when you release in general, the main use case of feature flags is to be able to separate uh, release from deployment. So the the idea there is that you can actually deploy all of your code to your production servers, but not have any of your users see it initially. And then at a later point, you can actually turn on the feature in a way that um, then, then they'll start getting the feature. And a big part of the reason to do that is deployments are risky and releasing features are risky. And so being able to decouple those allows you to understand where the problem's actually happening more easily if a problem does happen. Um, the additional piece you can do there is because you're doing this release separately, uh, and we allow a lot of fine tuning around how you actually target who's getting the new feature. So you don't necessarily have to just do it as an on off switch. Instead, you could do it as percentages or even target specific groups. So instead you could say, um, while this code is in production, we want it off for all of our normal users, but anyone who's an employee at Split, for example, maybe can see this new feature. And so that's a way for us to start testing our stuff before it's released to the broader audience. Um, likewise, then, like maybe we think it's great and so we want to start rolling it out, So, but we could first pick a set of beta customers or maybe when I was at Box, we like to use our, our free customers for this sort of thing. So being able to pick a set of customers that start seeing the new feature and then get feedback or see if there are problems and then adjust accordingly based on that. Nice. 
Now the description in the blog uh, article talks also about uh, maybe using a feature flag before a feature is complete. D do you consider that part of the same use case or is that a separate, uh, you know, maybe it takes three months to build the complete feature, but you don't want to wait three months to merge into to to the master branch or main branch. So you do bits at a time, but you don't want to turn it on. Is that a, is that a separate use case in your mind? I see that as very related, but maybe slightly separate. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much, <laughs> the use case is pretty much precisely what you outlined there. Yeah, yeah, okay. The second point in the post talks about entitlement, which th that title didn't make a lot of sense to me at first till I read it, but do you want to explain what that means? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, this is also sometimes referred to internally as like, feature packs or service packs, something along those lines. But the idea is uh, these would be long-lived feature flags. So unlike that first group, which you put into the code, you let it run for a while and then you take it back out. This instead is meant to stay there over a period of time or probably forever. We have permanent feature flags as a type of feature flag. But the idea here is that you might have feature or users, sorry, users paying for a premium tier and then you could basically control that by a feature flag. So you can say, you know, if if they're in this particular split, I guess we call them splits internally. If you're in this particular split, then you're going to get the additional features. And this is a way to easily be able to add features to a particular pack of users or, you know, payment pack, uh, or to be able to allow, you know, customer success or somebody else not engineering control who can who can have access to features. So I imagine a typical use case there is is you offer maybe a, a, a premium tier plus a, a basic tier and a professional tier or something like that. And yeah. it just turns on the different types of features. Exactly. Nice. Then the third one is compliance. Um, I suppose uh, I, can I, can, I can imagine what that means, but maybe uh, maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit. How are feature flags useful in a compliance scenario? Probably a lot of ways we're not thinking of. Uh, the one I know we use is around um, having additional, I guess, internal admin type features that we only allow certain certain people to access. So we can say like our a few of our support people have access to our customers' accounts, but you know nobody else within our organization does, and we're, that's controlled via a feature flag. And because it's done that way, we and because we also have audit logs for all the changes to the feature flags, we can see if somebody was accidentally put into one of those accounts or taken out of one of those accounts or things like that. So we can actually see who has access to, to some of those support features. Right, good. The next one I'm going to skip because I want to get back to that one. That's the one I really want to spend time on. So the next one down after that one uh, is feature flags as circuit breakers. Uh, do you want to explain that one? Yeah, so this one is is sort of a like an emergency out sort of uh, situation. So if you have, if you have code, we have we have certain uh, code paths that get hit very very heavily, and so in certain cases we might you know suspect that things could go terribly wrong, or maybe they went terribly wrong in the past in that particular area. So we can put in a feature flag that essentially, when we notice things start going badly, we can just flip it off, and then that immediately would stop the flow. So it's yeah, so a circuit breaker tends to work that way, right? Like when things start to go badly, you can turn something off. So this is the same idea. If you start to notice things go badly, you can turn it off. Uh, we use it a lot with logs. Uh, we kind of use it in reverse with logs occasionally too, where instead we might have uh, logging wrapped in a feature flag for an area that we suspect might have issues, but you know we don't want to be logging all the time. And so if 
somebody reports a problem that we can turn the logging on and then you know collect some logs and then turn it back off so we're not paying for all of the logs over right all time. right that makes sense that's a good one let's jump back up to the one that i skipped because this is the one that kind of jumped out at me and it's maybe the longest one on this article and it's maybe the least at least for me the least intuitive or obvious so and that is infrastructure migration the article says that feature flags can be used to help for example when migrating from a monolith to microservices and that's not something that like, like i said it's not something that's obvious to me would you explain how this is useful and how somebody uh, or a team that's considering this sort of a, that sort of migration could use feature flags to their benefit we have a lot of different use cases related to this. Um, so we've been, we are actually in the process of migrating our monolith to microservices. So we've, we've actually used a bunch of this. I, I guess like a small one to start with, uh, this was actually something we did at Box a lot, but um, a coworker of mine there, Schnepper, had this tool called Tombstoning, which the idea is that you can basically mark all of your code and figure out which, which sections of the code are dead and no longer accessed. Um, and that's basically done through log statements. And the problem, but the problem with just doing straight up log statements is that you can again get spammed with logs pretty easily. So if you then mix in a feature flag as well, it gets pretty easy to slowly, you know, check various parts of the code and slowly turn it on and you know gain confidence that some of this code is no longer hit. And I bring this up because it's nice to limit the amount of code you're trying to move or separate before you actually even try to do the migration. So that's one use case. Um, in terms of the actual separation, there, there's a lot that are kind of entangled a bit. Let me, let me just break this apart <laughs> individually. So I guess uh, parity testing. So the idea here is you want to check, the, ideally you're replacing an old system with a new system and you don't want the end users to be able to see a difference at all, right? Like you're hoping that this is going to be seamless and there's no changes in the UI. So in this case, ideally you would stick a little interface in front of each that's the same. And then you have calls come into your old system and you would initially just re respond with the, the old system, right? Because you don't, again, you don't want to interrupt your users. Uh, then the idea there is that then you start asynchronously sending these calls to your new system as well. Uh, typically, if you want to be doing parity testing, you would typically send this along with the response, the expected response. And so then you check the new system and you see, does this match the old system? And at that point, if the two values do not match, then you would log, log the, that case and as much information as you have at that point, right? Um, and part of how a feature flag is useful here is that if you do find uh, that you have a problem, you can easily stop logging and you know, even stop sending traffic to the new system so it's not getting hammered for no reason while you fix the problem. And then you can start doing doing this again. Okay, so that's that's parity testing. So it allows you to basically see does the new system actually work the same way that the old system does. Um, when I was at Box, we replaced our authorization uh, system with a new, a fully new service. And we did this there and found an entire use case that we had totally forgotten about, which would have caused major problems if we had released this to anybody. But because we caught it with parity testing, we were able to you know fix it before we released any of this feature at all. So. That was really useful. Um, okay, so parity testing. Uh, and then the next one is more around mirroring. So with mirroring, uh, it's again asynchronously sending the calls but without actually checking if things match. Uh, the reasons you might care about mirroring, uh, so the first use case is around checking costs. So uh, not too long ago, we did a total overhaul of our um, 
one of our backend data pipeline systems. And we were hoping to make it a lot cheaper, but we wanted to make sure this was actually the case before we you know, fully rolled things over and deleted the old system. So as a part of that, we, uh, we basically, once we had it mostly built, although if we had done this better, maybe we could have done it earlier, but once we had it mostly built, we turned it on, we turned mirroring on for a set period of time and we, that we thought was uh, indicative of our overall usage pattern. So like, I don't remember what it was, but like a week or something, right? And then you can extrapolate from there. And we, we saw what the cost we accrued during that time was, and then we were able to calculate from there, like what do we think the cost is gonna be over time? Is, are there any surprises? Does it make sense? And in our case, it actually did make sense with what we were expecting, but it's nice to be able to verify that and not have any surprises at the end. So, um, so cost there, that's one use for mirroring. Uh, another one is more around the load test and the stress testing, like I mentioned. So when you're building a fully new service, uh, it's easy to forget little things. It's easy to not have your connection pool tuned correctly or you know, like small things here and there that are gonna cause problems when you actually get your expected load. So the idea is, again, mirroring the traffic and that's going to help you see, like, can you actually handle the level of traffic that you're expecting? And another nice thing here, again, with the feature flags, instead of just putting in asynchronous calls all the time, is that you can actually start with a lower load. So, and this is especially useful if, if like the full load just immediately makes it fall over. It's sometimes really hard to see why it fell over, but with starting with a lower load, sometimes you can see, oh, this call is getting slow, or oh, this is getting you know, kind of weird. And so it's easier to debug, and then you can wrap up after you fix some of the low hanging fruit and the obvious problems until you can get to full load potentially even higher than full loads. So that gets more into the stress testing. Um, there's a lot of stress testing tools, uh, things like Gatling or JMeter, which you know you write tests and you just hammer your system until it falls over. And I'm, I'm not saying not to use those, those are also really useful. But the problem with those is they don't have a realistic traffic pattern usually, right? Because it's just whatever tests you happen to put into the system. And so by um, mirroring your traffic, or in, you can even do something like double mirroring, right? Like send a request and then wait five seconds and send the same request again. Uh, so being able to do something like that gives you much more realistic traffic patterns in terms of what you think you might see. So that can be really helpful. I've, I've learned a lot already. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's really good. Um, when, so, so we've, we've made it through that, that article. Uh, I want to step back a little bit and talk more generally about how and when to use feature flags. Um, I, I like to talk about that the poor man's feature flag is just an if false. That you know you could use that anywhere in your code. If if you don't have a feature flag uh, library or service that you're using and you really need to push something out to the production that's not running yet, just put it, wrap it in an if false type of statement. Um, but obviously that doesn't scale very well. You, you, can't, you can't control that from, your customer service department can't control that. Only somebody with Git access can do that. So when does it make sense, in your opinion, to start uh, looking for a more proper uh, feature flag solution than you can get from if false or even just reading a YAML file with, with Booleans in it or something like that? When does it make sense to start looking at a full-fledged uh, feature flag service like Split or some, one of your competitors? I'm probably pretty biased here, but I would say very, very early. <laughs> so we have a free offering. I'm sure some of our competitors too, there are definitely some open source options out there. So 
it's not like you have to pay money from the start or free offerings meant for small companies and whatnot. So if you are small, then it makes sense to start, start with one of these. Um, you mentioned a lot of the, the pros to that. There's things like being able to have somebody else turn things on or off for you. There are things like um, being able to do those slow ramps, like I mentioned, or target particular people with the turn, turn on instead of just the straight on and off. Um, the other nice thing is if there is a problem, we have like a big red kill button and I'm sure basically any framework out there has something kind of equivalent where it's just like things are going badly, just turn it off immediately. So it, it flips it to the off state. And this is a lot faster, at least for us, our pipeline's kind of slow. So this is a lot faster than pushing any kind of comp file or actually pushing code to like turn something back off if things are going badly. And uh, I mean, I, I know some answers to this, but it would be good to hear it from an expert. Um, and, and actually, maybe we should address it a little bit differently. The question is, why not just build my own feature flag tool or framework? Uh, because you know, th this is the kind of thing that I, I mean, I've seen homegrown feature flag frameworks everywhere. And uh, it, it seems like the kind of thing, like I'm just checking a Boolean value, or maybe worst case, I'm checking one of six values. Surely it's not that difficult to build my own. Uh, you know, engineers are always trying to build their own things. Why, why shouldn't we build our own feature flag uh, tool? <laughs> Honestly, so many people have done that. So I'm not going to say you can't do that. You obviously can. Um, yeah. That said, I guess, first of all, we have a lot of our current customers are actually people who have a homegrown solution that are migrating from that. So obviously there's there's something out there that people, people see the value in actually paying for it. But I, to elaborate on that a little more, um, I, I think the thing is that it's it's fairly easy to build the bare minimum, but you're, it's going to be a slow bleed over time, right? People are going to start saying like, "Oh, I want I want more fancy targeting. Like I, I want to be able to turn, you know, like percentage rollout. I want to be able to do the targeted rollout, like I mentioned. I want to be able to mix and match those. I want to be able to say like." You know, those three users over there get it on as well as 5% randomly or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Or maybe everybody in Boston gets it, right? And so, like, you're slowly building these features to make it more and more complex. Um, and so it's going to be a slow bleed over time. Uh, there's also things like being able to, the audit logs, like I mentioned, so being able to see who changed what. We have, like, approval processes, so, like, I can make a change to a feature flag and then have you know somebody else on my team review that change before it actually takes takes effect things along those lines um, honestly this is like a lot of these tools so like authentication for example like I know we we currently have a homegrown authentication solution and we're looking at moving to something more or you know like a paid product and a lot of that for us is like sure our current our current needs are met fine and you know we could build the next feature we're getting asked for probably quicker than replacing the whole system. But there's the next feature and the next feature and the next feature. And so like, do we really have the time to keep building those and supporting all of those? And at some point, it's not really worth it. You've already touched on some of the answer to this question, but I think it would be good to address it directly. And I'm, I'm curious to to hear about the dimensions that, that make sense to do feature flagging on. You talked about geographic, are, are you in Boston? or percentages. But what are some other things? Because you know, if, if you're trying to build your own, you're probably just thinking on off. Uh, and then you eventually start to think of these other other options. Help us uh, brainstorm what those options are that we might care about in the future. <laughs> I feel like that's a lot of them. One of the big 
tripping points that I've seen with homegrown solutions is the, the percentage just taking a shortcut with that and doing something like um, modulo on the, the user ID or something, mm -hmm. which in theory sounds like a great idea, but then the problem is anybody with like a one in the last column gets all of the new features and then, you know, it kind of all stacks on top of each other and causes problems. So something to keep in mind. <laughs> That's a nice one. Um, and, and maybe a related question is, is uh, how do you allow people, uh, how can you turn on these things? I mean, obviously, uh, you can have a, a customer service person, or assuming you set that up in your situation. Um, can you also do this uh, through a URL parameter if you want to just you know quickly for a demo, say, let's turn on feature X in, in a demo. You know, what are the different ways that you might want to enable these, these features? I don't think, actually, you're referring to like cookie flip type thing, sure, uh, which is yeah. another thing that we've done um, at Box, which, which basically like the idea, yeah, it's the, the URL is how we, we set that there, is basically you put like a URL parameter and then it saves it in your cookies locally. And then every time you fetch, it'll, it'll basically send the value that you, you want for the feature flag. Um, so that's that's another good option. Um, it's a it's a little less secure, obviously. Right. It's sort of yeah. more like obscurity, <laughs> yeah. sort of security. But um, the way we handle it too is that we we actually allow fairly complex logic in the targeting rules, and then that's pushed down to the local system. So there's sort of two ways to to do feature flags, either. The uh, client sends all of the data to the feature flag server, so to speak, and says like, what, what value should I get for this? Or you can send the targeting rules down to the client and then they can look locally to see like, does, does my parameters match this targeting rule? Um, the split does the, the latter and the value there is that we're not actually getting any of our customers' data. So they can do like, they can do targeting based on PII and we'll never actually get that PII, which is great for us and them, <laughs> to be <Right>. quite honest. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and then in that sense, like they can set up like, if this user has this parameter on their profile, then they should get this, this treatment. Or if, which kind of refers to like that location-based mm -hmm. one that I was talking about. Or you can even do something like, if feature flag A is turned on, they should also get feature flag B. Okay. So things along those lines. Um, and I suppose you could target it on any, anything you want at that point, right? You yeah. could target it on, on their age or other demographics or yep. if, they're, if they're using dark mode or light mode or whatever you want, right? Yep, precisely. Cool. Which gets us to the next topic I'm interested in discussing, which is uh, feature flags versus A-B testing, which goes back to the original conversation we had uh, a few weeks ago. Um, I know Split uh, offers both, um, but maybe before we talk about that, uh, what is what is the difference between feature flagging and A-B testing uh, in your mind? This is probably a weird answer because I work at, at Split, uh -huh. but I would say A-B testing is probably largely an extension of feature flags in a lot of ways, assuming you have an advanced enough feature flag framework. Okay. Uh, this wouldn't quite work as well if it's just straight on and off like we were talking about before. Yeah, yeah. So for us, we treat, in, in the back end, we treat, they're exactly the same object. Like every, everything is an experiment, everything is a feature flag. Like they, they are the same thing. Um, and then basically what, what gives you the experiment side of things is you can create these 
metrics and you can create um, like what are you looking for and then we start calculating those metrics based on the feature flag states so if you have you know 10 percent like on and 20 or 90 percent off right then we start calculating for for the metrics that you've set up for your thing like which ones are doing better for a or on versus off right um it gets a little weird cause, like because in experimentation people tend to talk about a b c versus feature flags people tend to do on off and i there's obviously other states but but yeah it works basically the same way um a lot of our customers use and in fact, internally, a lot of our experiments are actually what we call do no harm experiments. And it's more like we're rolling out a new feature. So we're using it just as a feature flag, but we want to make sure that in the process, we don't you know, mess up our performance and we don't mess up you know, the standard click through on our most important things or whatever it happens to be, right? We want to make sure that new features don't cause problems here. So that's a lot of our experiments that we run actually. On that note, do you, run all new features through a feature flag slash do no harm experiment or are you selective? I would say all big features have a feature flag. Um, we're not always as great about actually setting up the experiment side of things. I'm sure we're still calculating for most of them, but we don't always pay attention to okay. it. But <laughs> I'm sure somebody would tell us if things were going terribly badly. But <laughs> what we have so. <laughs> but yeah, we do always use the feature flag. Yeah, nice. And I, I, I mean, I suppose you're in a biased position here too. But the question is, would you advise other people to do that? And, and I suppose you're biased because the more they do that, the more money your company makes. Uh, but <laughs> aside from that, whether they're using you or, or an open source project or whatever, um, wh why, uh, wh what's the case for that? Why, why does it make sense to use feature flags uh, for, for essentially everything? Honestly, even when I was at Box, we used feature flags for basically everything. So I would say the, the big argument there is, I mean, it's a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, right? It's being able to separate deploy from release. It's being able to start merging, uh, like, you know, do smaller commits, start merging those early and not have your broken feature because you haven't finished it yet affect anyone while you're still working on it. But by being able to merge the code early and often, you tend to have a lot fewer issues later in the process and, you know, any, any small side effects that you weren't expecting, you can usually catch a lot earlier on. Um, it does allow you to do testing. It allows you to do things like have a different feature flags uh, set up in staging than production. So you can start saying, I think we're ready. Let's turn it on in staging. And you can start testing in your staging environment before you bother with production. So I know we talked about testing and production before, but if you're, if you're even worried about that, uh, usually we actually start with staging and then we start doing the live production testing before we actually roll it out. So it gives you a lot of a lot of these safety things. And then having that like automatic off switch if something goes wrong is very, very nice in a lot of cases too. In fact, um, at both Box and Split, in addition to like every decent sized feature having a feature flag, we also use them for high risk bug fixes. So if we were doing a bug fix that we, we just were a little worried about like, you know, side effects we weren't sure about or something like that, we would wrap it in a feature flag. And like that, that use case, you turn it on almost immediately, but it just allows you that instant off switch if something does go wrong. Right. I'm interested to hear a little bit. Uh, I want to address anybody listening who says, yes, this all sounds like a good idea, uh, but it's not for me or it's too complicated or I don't have the time to learn how to do this. What is it? 
what's involved in setting up a feature flag if we use split or, or I'm, I imagine it's similar with any framework but like from a coding standpoint uh, I'm a developer I'm adding my first feature flag what does that look like split and I'm sure most of our competitors if not all of them have a bunch of SDKs for a bunch of different languages so the idea there is you you install the SDK and that handles most of the complicated part and so basically all you you need to do then is you define the we have like a constants file somewhere with the current feature flags in the system. And then, you know, from the various other files, we basically do, it's like a line of code that's something like, if, you know, treatments.on equals, you know, and then, you know, get treatment for this flag with these settings or with these parameters. And then that would respond with the, the particular setting for that flag. So. Yeah, and I know we have a lot of tutorials. Most other people probably also have a lot of <laughs> tutorials and examples. So it's, it's basically an if statement, right? Uh, you, I mean, you have to pass yeah. in some sort of session parameters or whatever it is that, that your thing might be based on, um, and yeah. then you, you get an answer, so. And I guess if you have more than two states, it could be a switch statement. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, and then uh, I, I think it's pretty clear, at least in my mind, how this would work for a a typical modern web app, but um, what if I want to do feature flags on a mobile app or, or something that I, my server isn't necessarily controlling? Uh, what does that look like and, and what are the differences or concerns there? So we also have a mobile SDK, so you can, you can use that as well. Um, but yeah, it basically works kind of the same way. So you would, you would put this into your code, it would get shipped with, with the with the code to your customers. Um, there tends to be slightly different usage patterns between server and mobile. Uh, server tends to, let's see, what do we do? We do we do push for server and we do pull for mobile is our typical use case. So the idea is like um, with server, we, we notify them when there are changes. We're like, oh, things have changed in your splits and segments. Here's the notification. In fact, we do this a little bit for mobile as well. But with mobile, the use case is much more like I open the app, and at that point, I'm going to go and fetch all of the current state. And then I will use it for a little while, and then I'm going to close it again. And then the next time I open it, I'm going to refetch all of the current state. Versus server is more always on. So it's more just like push the updates, and they're never actually going to be fetching full state. Instead, they're just or very, very rarely fetching full state. Instead, they're just getting the updates. Um, but yeah, I guess the, the big thing to keep in mind, which I'm sure if you're a mobile developer, you already know, is that your clients are not gonna upgrade very often. So getting those feature flags into there in the first place might be a little bit more challenging. But the same, we, I mean, we have a JavaScript SDK for, for client-side JavaScript, and so that's the same idea too, right? It's written the same way as the mobile stuff, so. Let's share some contact info then. Obviously, Split, the company you work for, is at split.io. Um, if you're yes. looking for a feature flag framework, that's uh, one to consider. If people are interested in uh, connecting with you, are, are you available for contact on social media or anywhere else? Sure, uh, Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, you can find okay. me both places. I'm not super active, for better or for worse. But. Okay. And you have a, a blog as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, uh, I have a Medium blog. All right. Well, Joy, thank you so much for coming on and educating me and, and hopefully a few other people about uh, feature flags and A-B testing. Uh, this is a topic that's uh, been quite fascinating uh, for me for, for many years, so it's really fun to talk about this. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me.